This podcast edition of Other Side of Texas is brought to you by our friends at Flint Boot and Hat, a West Texas original. You want a great hat or you want to make your boots great again, go see them at 3035 34th Street or Flint and 34th Street in Lubbock or see more at flinthat.com. Welcome in to Other Side of Texas. Thank you for hanging out with us here on the Other Side of Texas and telling others that you do the same. Jay West Texas Leeson here broadcasting from those studios where Buddy Holly, raving on Buddy Holly, became famous. Your calls and texts today want to hear from you, 806 745-5800. And my deal is this. If it's a good call, you'll make the podcast. More and more people subscribe to the podcast. You can find it there on the Apple's uh, Apple iTunes store uh, for free. And you can just go ahead and tell your family members, your friends, your co-workers, hey, you ought to check this out. Some, uh, some raving on going on there on the other side of Texas. Uh, but if it's a bad call, it's not going to make the podcast and that's the way entertainment radio goes broadcasting from the racer car wash studios racer car wash voted lubbock's best wash for five years running stop into one of five convenient locations across the hub city for the best wash around guaranteed racerwash.com you know i talked about our trip i was focused on the negatives yesterday And if you didn't listen to yesterday's program, I want to encourage you to go to um, go to our podcast. You can find it at at SoundCloud or you can find it on OtherSideOfTexas.com. That would be preferable for revenue generation. Uh, But also the the iTunes, Apple Podcasts, you can find it there as well. Um, I call it iTunes. I'm sorry. I'm showing my 39-year-old age. It's the Apple Podcasts. And I focus on the negatives. I told this story about getting stopped. It's going to be, this is the way I'm going to start referring to it on Twitter. Because I'm not going to lay down on it. Like, this is going to be a thing. And I'm going to wage a war for all Texans against the hashtag chicken crap speed trap in Comfort, Texas on Highway 87 as it meets I-10. All good Texans need to be aware of the chicken crap speed trap and then go to Kendall County Crime Stoppers and figure out what that deputy could be doing instead of handing out chicken crap speed traps. I'm going to pay it. I'm going to pay it in pennies. Um, I, I make that pledge now. I will pay it in pennies, even if I have to deliver it myself. Uh, but another such a great trip with my wife first time without kids in a long time but one other thing i did not get the opportunity to to perform at green hall that's on my that's on my bucket list at the end i've got all sorts of goods i can dig through the country basket with anybody i mean at green hall how about some of this he stopped loving her today they're looking at me, telling me that I'm, I'm uh, fritzing out the board. But that's you go some old school, an old school country uh, act is what I'd go with, and I would just cover old songs. Um, but the only time I'll know, I'll hear David Allen call. You got to move your trachea whenever you do that. It would have been nice. But two things I did, other than fall further in love with Mrs. Leeson there in the Hill Country Resort, how come nobody's ever told me about jalapeno and cucumber margaritas? And mostly just jalapeno mar. I will eat jalapenos like my kids. Like, we'll be sitting down for breakfast, eggs and bacon. And they're like, Dad, don't, don't. I mean, at least it's not ketchup. I've seen people do that, and it makes me gag. I will eat a jalapeno at any meal, and we always have jalapenos. Like, the kids always have, like, apples and oranges and bananas, but Dad's always got his bag of of jalapenos. Um, 
So, just some things I left off of uh, my list yesterday. I should have sang at Green at Green Hall, and I should have known about jalapeno margaritas um, before last weekend. It's a thing, and I'm going to master it. I'm going to make a sugar-free but sugary jalapeno margarita. It's going to happen. And we're going to launch it from the other side of Texas, and I'm going to make even more side money off of that. You watch. Uh, today's a big deal in Texas politics because today is the day that the PDFs come out and everybody begins to understand what's going on with campaign finance reports. That's right. That You get to understand where the money to the degree that Texas politics, which is about two steps above house-run Texas Hold'em, so far as ethics is concerned but today's a day where you get to see where the checks came from and i found this little nugget for you i mean this is texas a get out right here sid miller agriculture commissioner firmly has ted nugent in his corner i believe i've got a bumper sticker from uh from sid miller's last race and it's that uh, Ted Nugent for president or something. That was what he was handing out. Ted Nugent has his name all over uh, Sid Miller's campaign and Sid Miller the man and the politician. But today, now look, here's the deal. And let me just break for just a second and tell you that coming up is Catherine Boudreaux. She's an agriculture and food reporter with Politico. That's right, the big Politico in D.C. I've got some questions about trade wars, who's getting hurt. And today the FDA comes out and says we need to start classifying things that lactate as milk. Products that are given from lactating things, particularly mammals, preferably uh, that's milk. If it comes from almonds or soy, not milk. FDA going after that, uh, trying to change the identity there. Uh, identity dairy politics coming up with Catherine Boudreaux as well as uh, we have Stan Lambert, House member, Texas House member out of Abilene. Talk about big country and the Texas legislature through his first session going into the second session. Stan Lambert would be a good listen for you. But there's this lady named Kim Olson, if you're not aware, who's running against Sid Miller. Now, I've not met her in person, and I've already laid down the offer to host a debate between Miller and Olson in the agriculture epicenter of the universe right here in the rural metropolis of Lubbock, that's where they ought to be having this debate. And not talking about identity, politic issues, and fringe issues, but come to Lubbock and let's talk about uh, economics in a place where cotton is $5 billion a year within a 100-mile radius. That would make a lot of sense. And I offer that to both of them. Uh, Sid Miller declined in the primary for good i mean out of political reason he didn't want to get into a back and forth with his primary opponent but now texans deserve to know uh, what's going on between those two candidates but kim olson reminds me a lot of there was this lady that whenever we go out to the farm there was a lady down the road and she was nice but you also knew that she could tear your head off like she reminds me of classic, like, pre-boomer West Texas woman. Like, she, if the if her husband dies, she's got it. She's going to run it all by herself. Uh, that's what Kim Olson kind of reminds me of. And she is, she does some farming and ranching. But today, in campaign finance reports, and I credit Lauren McGowey uh, with the Dallas Morning News for, for getting this, the lead on this, but Don Henley of the Eagles is a big $10,000 backer of Kim Olson. So, uh, it's Don Henley versus Ted Nugent in that campaign. Pretty, pretty interesting. Has some things to say about uh, yesterday. I spent some time on the Trump-Putin press conference. I want to focus in on what matters economics-wise with Catherine Boudreaux and then regionally with Stan Lambert and then get back to Finland and uh, Trump and Putin and the fallout from yesterday. Lots of backpedaling going on. And all of a sudden, 
courageous people coming out to speak on it. But uh, we'll cover that in the last segment. For now, I want to thank you for being right where you are. Check out these great sponsors. Be about 90 seconds right back in with you here on the other side of Texas. Johnny can't drink because Johnny ain't 21. I'm here. We're going to get in with Catherine Boudreaux about trade deficits and about, uh, I believe this is her now, Catherine Boudreaux, Politico, uh, food and ag reporter. How are you, ma'am? I'm good. How are you, Jay? I'm sorry about some uh, technical glitches there, but uh, let's give you your proper introduction. Uh, calling in from D.C. I'm going to get away from the swamp thing, because I think that that's pretty well overdone at this <laughs> point. But what is it like? like? Catherine, where are you from originally? I'm from northern Vermont, actually. Okay. So is is tra- I would just think that traffic is like in Lubbock. Whenever the tech kids, the Texas tech kids come back into town, uh, everything just gets bogged up uh, for most part, especially in the central part of the city. Is that what happens in the summer in D.C.? Like a big influx of tourists? You know, I do notice a lot more tourists in the summertime, of course, but gosh, it's so sweltering here. Actually, the 4th of July wasn't even that that packed. I was surprised I was able to make it down to the National Mall without too much of a crowd. Um, but it was it was kind of unbearable because the heat. <laughs> okay, so the heat keeps people away. <laughs> I think so. I think if anybody's interested in visiting D.C., come in the fall. <laughs> yeah, the fall. Would but be... there is an influx of a lot of like interns. Um, I I work on Capitol Hill a lot, and I noticed so many more uh, young people interns working for you know various congressional offices. So in, I would in say. The summer. I yeah, yeah, in yeah. the summer. Uh, so let's go to a couple of things. And I love that you are willing to come on the show and speak to people who want to learn about these issues because you're looking them right in the face all the time. Uh, today, news comes out that uh, from Politico that the administration, the Trump administration, plans on cracking down on the Wild West of soy and almond milk labeling. That's from your cohort, by the way, Elena Bottomiller-Evich. That's her tweet on it. But the head of the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, Scott Gottlieb, says that essentially if it doesn't come from a mammal that lactates, it's not milk, based upon the FDA's qualifications. Is that right? Yes, that's what he said. It was a very, uh, I think it was the highlight of the day, and it was first thing in the morning today at our pro summit, um, which we, Politico organizes. This is the second one. It's just kind of panels of a bunch of uh, administration leaders coming to talk about. Mm-hmm. It was focused on trade and food and act. But, um, yeah, so he, he said that the FDA is going to take steps to enforce what it calls standards of identity for milk, so that's just a wonky way of saying, like, uh, what does constitutes milk? What is the process mm-hmm. that needs to be undertaken to make milk? And only if that process can label a product as milk. So their industry has been asking FDA to crack on this for a couple of years because they're facing competition from almond milk and soy milk and coconut yogurt, which are uh, uh, getting very popular. So... They want FDA to crack down on that because they say it's misleading consumers who might think that plant-based alternatives to milk contain the same amount of nutrients, and they argue that's misleading. It does mislead consumers, including this one, because Mrs. Leeson (laughs) buys this almond stuff, and you go in in the morning... And you're cracking the fridge, trying to beat your wife up so that you can make the coffee, so you can be the hero. And, you know, you got you got sleep in your eyes, and you're half awake, and you reach where you always reach for the milk, and you get this almond water and put it in your coffee. For me, and I'm not speaking in any way for you, but, yeah, it's deceptive. This is not milk. This is almond white water. Right. Well, of course, you know, I think the the counter-argument to this from advocates of plant-based products say, well, yeah, you know, consumers know that it's not really milk. It says clearly that it's all made from almonds on the label. So 
the the FDA shouldn't be wasting its resources trying to enforce something that consumers clearly understand. Mm. But the, of course, the dairy industry begs to differ. So here's my suggestion to Gottlieb and anybody else. And maybe I could come lead a forum at uh, Politico Pro one day. I mean, just maybe. But I would, I would just, you know, like they used to do the old Pepsi, and you probably don't remember this. You're, you're younger than I am. But the Pepsi taste tests. And kids knew, like, one was Coca-Cola and one tasted like Coke with dirt in it. And have the kids tell you, the almond milk's not the same thing, man. It's not the same thing. Definitely not. It's very thin, and I actually somebody told me today that they prefer cashew milk. It's much creamier, more mm. similar to whole milk, but I, I'm dubious. <laughs> well, I know that uh, you can't get involved in animal versus plant-based, uh, but that's an interesting. So that's the first time the FDA's really taken this up. So, but give us a timeline on when dairy really began to clash its heads against uh, its collective head against uh, almond and coconut and the rest. Is that like a 10-year yeah, process? Well, I think it's a, maybe a handful of years. You know, I'm not entirely clear when the first kind of sh- uh, shot was fired in this, this debate about whether these plant-based products can be labeled as milk. But, um, I, you know, it's, it's been a couple of years. At least I've covered uh, the dairy sector and food and ag for like four years now. And um, I want to say it may have taken shape just a few years ago. But, um, you know, FDA isn't moving anywhere on this fast. I mean, so this is a big announcement mm-hmm. today. But it, it will probably take at least a year for them to go through this, like, public comment process wow. and because they have to change when they change their enforcement discretion they really do have to formalize that and then they're definitely going to get sued actually i think this is a, a first amendment issue as well so okay so we'll, there's we'll, going to be a lot of litigation in the court okay, I, so I would think it's a year and after the year then they'll begin to take up uh, litigation, the FDA being sued by these groups. Catherine Boudreau with Politico joining us. You're just jumping on the show. Um, so you say, for, explain this within the context of First Amendment. Like we can call it whatever we want to? Yeah, well, I think it has to do with commercial speech. So, and because a business, you know, they're subject to these, there's, they have. Um, commercial speech for the First Amendment, and basically, I don't think it, it can't be misleading. So, uh, you know, the the plant based food advocates are saying, well, this isn't misleading to consumers. So, you know, businesses can be using this these terms. Yeah. Um, so I'm not saying the consumers can intuit it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, but you know, I this is. I want to do a, a step back piece on some of these legal issues that will be facing the agency as it plays, goes through this process. So I myself have some more uh, research to do on what exactly the legal implications are of a First Amendment challenge. Now, is there anything that, like whenever you've talked with people and began to look at the background, is there an analogy, a historical analogy of, well, at one point in time, this particular industry tried to call itself this and then was pulled back? You know, I, yeah, I haven't. I haven't. That's that's something that I I definitely need to look no. into as I continue to follow this this story going forward. Hmm. Well, so I can't point to a specific example um, in the marketplace. But. Like I've got like three or four things in my head that I want to throw out, but I don't want to get you or I in trouble. I mean, there are some things that are called beer that should not be called beer, but. Um, I'll just stop it there. Uh, <laughs> Catherine Boudreau, as we go along here, I want to get into agriculture and trade wars. And here's one thing that grinds my gears. This is a commentary before we get into this. But I and others were writing on agriculture and the plight of the farmer four years ago. And People on either side, like you have like the Environmental Working Group on the left, and then you've got like Cato and Heritage on the right who are working against farm interests and farm American farming families. Uh, and it wasn't, nobody even batted an eye. Like cotton was in the trouble that it was in, and, and all sorts of sectors were in trouble. But now, oh, now that we're getting into trade wars, everybody's concerned about the farmer. And I think it's a little bit disingenuous. Uh, but 
from a just set the stage for us here from a 20,000 foot overview and you looking at all the sectors who is in the most trouble what sectors of agriculture are in the most trouble right now as trade wars begin to gear up I think that the pork, soybean, and some fresh fruit sectors are going to really feel the brunt of this trade war, uh, primarily because they depend a lot on China for our customers. So, I mean, one-third of the soybeans planted in the U.S. are shipped there. It's worth $14 billion in trade. Hmm. Uh, And then, you know, China is also the number two customer for pork. They shipped about a billion dollars worth of product there last year. And then, um, you know, I think of uh, some of the produce sectors, like cherries, for example. They depend a lot on China, and uh, now there's a bunch of different tariffs uh, slapped on each of these products, and uh, I think those will probably hurt the most. So fruit, to what, to cherries and fruit, to what extent again? Well, I just gave cherries as an example because, like, in the Pacific Northwest, for example, mm-hmm. they, they rely on China as one of their top customers. Mm. Uh, pears also apples cherries pears and apples would come to your mind first Mm -hmm. so uh here's the deal if china if china has not but china that's a reference to yesterday's show but if china has an fda are they going to have a problem whenever they stop getting american pork and start calling dog pork that's going to be the question in china um, we'll see if they crack down on them there. But, so those three sectors there, <laughs> I appreciate the stone face there too, Catherine. Probably better for you not to get involved in that commentary. Pork, soybean, and fruit. Um, so here's my deal there. And I'm looking at, we focused on China there. I'm looking at Office of the United States Trade Representative. Executive Office of the President. It's a report on the People's Republic of China. 2016. U.S. goods and services trade with China totaled an estimated $648.5 billion in 2016. Exports were $169.8 billion. Imports were $478.0 billion. Hold up, I'm getting to the bottom line. The U.S. goods and service trade deficit with China was $385 billion in 2016 according to the u.s department of commerce u.s exports of goods and services to china supported an estimated 911,000 jobs in 2015 and all i have to say Catherine boudreau what do you make of people's arguments like mine that we were already losing like we've already lost a trade war for how many ever years with china like, it's not, I understand that things can get worse, but maybe things need to get worse in order for them to get better. I think that's definitely the Trump administration's take. I mean, this is certainly a way to gain leverage and to pressure Beijing to change some of the practices that the Trump administration has been complaining about, and not just the Trump administration, many administrations prior to, to this one, uh, which is that they uh, force U.S. companies to transfer valuable technology as a condition doing business there, or there's intellectual property theft going on. And to the trade deficit that you're talking about, it's it's enormous. Beijing sends way more goods to the U.S. than, than we send over there. Um, so, I mean, yes, this is a, a way to gain leverage on China, but I think what is difficult about, about these negotiations with China is that they have some tools in their arsenal uh, for example, they can go, they can, you know, impose more regulatory and administrative burden and, at the border, and that could slow down product moving into the country. That's not necessarily a tariff dispute, but certainly is a non-tariff um, a, dispute. Yeah, a, a non Yeah, that's that's a non-tariff barrier that they can use. Also, China, you know, Beijing, they their government controls, you know, a large, basically the entire economy. So. You know, I think it's interesting. I was talking to some reporters from the South China Morning Post. Politico has a partnership with them that's pretty new. And some of those those reporters were in our offices last week and were telling us that, you know, if a certain sector of the economy is, is not doing so great in, in China, the government can support it, subsidize it, or give it a loan. And 
Uh, the U.S. just doesn't have those types of tools necessarily. We, our government tends to shy away from picking winners and losers. So I think that even though you know Beijing might feel that more pain because they send more uh, goods to the U.S., they perhaps could endure a trade war longer than the U.S. Uh, that was just the perspective of some of the reporters I met with okay. who are based in, in uh, Hong Kong. So uh, two follow-ups to that question about uh, we've been losing, a, and this is my assessment, not yours. I'm just asking you questions. But uh, Catherine Boudreaux, a Politico food and ag reporter with us here, uh, I've heard people, and even Congressman Jody Arrington on this show, say that the president has given them assurances that he will, quote, take care of uh, those who are losing. And by those who are losing, maybe he meant pork, soybean, and fruit. Does he have access to levers to take care of these sectors and these producers in a trade war? That's a great follow-up because, you know, as I'm saying, oh, the government doesn't pick, the U.S. government doesn't pick winners and losers. That, you know, of course, yes, the, the Trump administration has directed Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue to devise a plan to mitigate mm. some of the damage to U.S. farmers and ranchers okay. if they take a, a hit to the bottom line. And he does have levers, like, um, it's basically a bank that the USDA has. It's okay. called the Commodity Credit Corporation. And its sole mission is to uh, stabilize the farm economy, and I think there's up to like $30 billion that they could pull from. Mm. Um, but how they dole that out remains extremely complicated, wow. and I talked to a lot of You're uh, breaking some news analysts. here, Catherine. <laughs> uh, no, well, I mean, they, they've used the, the Commodity Credit Corporation to stabilize the farm economy in a trade dispute, I think, in the past, but I can't be quoted on this because... This is another story you need to do. All the historical examples. It's just you and I talking. This is not public. It's not going to go on a podcast or anything. So, you know, (laughs) feel free to to say that anything can't be quoted. No, but I I mean, I'm 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 throwing you some some curveballs here because I know you've got a a master of the subject. And I appreciate you uh, going to the links that you can to answer the questions. But so essentially what we're then, and this is my big point. And all those guys who call me a prairie socialist, come on, come at me right now instead of a prairie populist. But here's the deal. If he effectively directs and has directed the agriculture commissioner, or excuse me, secretary of agriculture, to go and find ways to fill in gaps to save producers, then they're beginning, like my whole thing is we've been losing this trade war and we've lost it for some time. So when are we going to start looking at basic price supports in U.S. agriculture? That's my question. I understand within globalization and World Trade Organization, that gets into being a hairy thing. But that's effectively the grounds that we're entering now is what are we going to do about price supports? And Catherine Boudreaux, do you hear anybody on the Hill talking more and more about price supports? I really I don't. And lawmakers, I think... Uh, are hesitant. I mean, Senator Pat Roberts from Kansas, who's the chairman of the Agriculture Committee, has has been reiterating that farmers want trade, not aid. So I don't think that sending additional aid to farmers is popular on the Hill. Of course, if it uh, if worst case scenario, in a worst case scenario, I'm sure they wouldn't object to it. But uh, I don't think that there's a lot of support for no. well, for. Um, Okay. Yeah, on the hill. Let's hear, let's hear Roberts, and with all due respect to the chairman, I'd love to hear him make that argument after, after the bottom lines come in with pork, soybean, fruit, and anything that follows. Um, maybe we're talking aid in the midst of trade at that point. Um, but that's just my take on it. Catherine Boudreaux, follow her there at Politico, and... Uh, does a great job we appreciate you chiming in here you got anything else you need to share with us before we get off i don't think so i just really appreciate you having me on the show it's always great talking to you well i tell you what uh, 30 seconds left here what what's going to happen to the farm bill when where are we going to have this conference committee do you expect any movement before the election oh great question so i mean i do think that they are going to go to conference 
before the election, but I, I, I don't think they're... My, if I was a betting person, I would bet that they, they don't pass the bill before the deadline of September 30th, and there'd be an extension. Okay. But I, I do think they will get to conference. But I think, I mean, in the past, I think conference committees have taken maybe a couple of months, so I just, I think it'll mm. take longer than we think. That's good perspective. <laughs> so you're not a betting person, but I will bet that they don't, because you said so. Catherine Boudreaux, <laughs> check her out uh, there at Politico. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you, Jay. Take care. Uh, get in just a moment with I'm a shoe shine man. Stan Lambert, his debut man. on the program. The guy's done so man. much, and here's my deal. Make you if he'd done all these things, why would you run for state representative? And he did, and he won. Get with him a Stan Lambert. Well, I can sing, I can dance, I can Howdy, Jay. West Texas Leeson here. I'm going to tell you about my friends at Flint Boot and Hat. They've been building hats since 1994 and repairing boots, I guess, since forever. My dog chewed up my ostrich boots. Jared and his guys replaced the heel, made them look new again, put new pulls on, and at a super affordable price, they've resold my boots, and they build great hats. Love these guys. Go check them out. 3035. 34th Street or Flint Boot and Hat Shop at Flint and 34th Street. See more at FlintHat.com. Molded out of red clay and baked in the West Texas sun to perfection is the other side of Texas with Jay Leeson. We've got Stan Lambert coming up here shortly out of Abilene uh, as we wait there for him to jump in. Some Arrington Congressman Arrington came into this show and said that the president gave him assurances and sure enough that was the first time I've heard it that those who are hurt in this ag dispute ag component would be taken care of and there's Catherine Boudreaux backing it up so maybe something to say and write about that later uh want to go out now he is the state representative out of House District 71 he is in this House District 71 being, by the way, out of Abilene. He is Stan Lambert. How are you, Stan Lambert? Doing well, Jay Leeson. How are you doing today? That's the Waylon Jennings version, by the way. <laughs> well, I hadn't heard it uh, said that way, but I'll, I'll have to go back and uh, uh, listen to some, uh, some old... 36 records or something. <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure you can get it on iTunes like we did. Uh, just, I'm sure we did. <laughs> so, Stan Lambert, you are a banker, have been, banker, athletic director, mayor, school board president, and rather than, like, going to skydiving or being an astronaut or maybe a car dealer there at the Oklahoma-Texas line, a lawyer, a Bitcoin entrepreneur, you chose to run for the Texas House. Why? Well, I felt like that uh, we needed another voice in uh, in Austin to, to represent uh, my friends and, and your friends and people that we grew up with and uh, who moved to West Texas because they chose to live in West Texas and they appreciate the values and the, the lifestyle and the, uh, a little bit slower pace of life, maybe not too slow at times, but those were some of the things that just uh, intrigued me and made me feel like this is something I need to do. It's something that I felt like it took all of those years of experience of being a banker, being a school board president, being a, a mayor of a small community in Ennis, Texas at one time, but just combining all of those uh, experiences uh, in realizing that uh, I had a little bit of knowledge about a lot of different things, but uh, you know, kind of a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. But those were things that drove me to uh, to believe this was the time to do it, and uh, and so uh, we put a team together and and uh, made sure that uh, we covered all the bases and and ran a very successful campaign in the first term, and and now we're in the middle of uh, another election coming up in November. So, well, I want uh, I want to get into the interim in just a moment, but sure, allow me just just let, humor me to get into my own Abilene Big Country bona fides. <laughs> My, you got some, yeah, you, your family has roots here for sure. My my great great grand great 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 grandfather, Richard Leeson, was amongst the earliest settlers of Abilene. His son, John Thomas Leeson, I'm the fifth. He was John Thomas Leeson, period. 
uh, started a grocer there in Abilene in 1896 at North 2nd and Pine Streets. And uh, his father, Richard, had a brickyard and uh, the Paxton Building, what was once the Cameron and Phillips Building downtown was uh, made out of leasing bricks as were some of the streets so i'm just humble bragging for just a second while i've got abilene's man on the phone line to say i've got my own but it is funny it's kind of curious that as as i travel down the cap rock and get into abilene there's i don't want to go all oprah here but there's like this uh a stirring in the soul like a like a historical familiarity with a place it, and that's what i feel like whenever i go into Abilene. great town it really is uh and and you know it's you do kind of feel like you're uh, kind of coming into a little bit of an awakening i don't know if that's uh, because we have three religious uh, colleges here or just uh, <laughs> the fact we've got a number of churches uh, uh in Abilene. they they always say that we've got a church on every corner but uh, you know, it's a, just a—it's been a great place. I was born and raised here. Went to high school, went to college. Spent about 15 years away from Abilene and was ready to get back in the early 90s. And uh, we we came back because we wanted to raise our boys uh, in this type of environment. We wanted them to number one know their grandparents, and and then uh, uh, we just felt like this was a place that we were comfortable with. We knew a lot of people. Uh, just you know those are things that I think the values that I talked about about West Texas and just knowing your neighbors knowing that you can pick up the phone and call anybody somebody will be coming to help if there's a problem uh, just yeah. a great place to, to to be from and to to now represent did you, uh, go, to, the, did you go to ACU yes sir I did okay so how tall are you you're pretty tall six three <laughs> I, I played basketball and yeah. baseball in college. Yeah, so and, uh, here's my question. You and Travis Clardy, one-on-one, first <laughs> first one to 11, win by two. Do you school them? Travis Clardy, by the way, state representative on Nacogdoches, from Lubbock, went to ACU, and that's a connection there. But can you take Travis Clardy? That's the question. You know, I, I might have to uh, tie one of his hands behind his back because he's got a little bit of an age differential on me, and so I I, I don't know that I Ooh, could. It's age, maybe, not height, because that know, guy's like six seven. He is. He's very tall, and he played basketball in college, and uh, very competitive, just like I am. So it would be a it would be a duel, but uh, so I'd you're saying you could take him. I'd give it my best shot. Okay. I, I guarantee. I'm gonna send them this <laughs> podcast and tell them that you said you could take them. Uh, so some th- let's get into some politics for just a moment. This you just finished yeah. your first term. I bet you weren't expecting what you got into, uh, Stan Lambert, which was a Senate leadership open war with House leadership to the degree that we've not seen in quite some time. And then in the interim, a speaker's race. What's that been like as a first-termer? It's been very eye-opening. You're exactly right. There were days that uh, I left the Capitol, and I was kind of scratching my head, asking myself, what have I gotten into uh, because of some of those rifts and some of those uh, differences in uh, uh, just basically understanding that we're all really in this fight together, but yet we're still not able to get things done. And and that really bothered me because I I really thought that that was why I was down there, was to try to get things accomplished, to try to help move our state forward, to help make sure that our district uh, was, was moving forward and, and getting the representation it deserves. And it just kind of came as a shock to me that uh, people that I thought would be very... Uh, open-minded and, and willing to work uh, together, uh, just kind of had to figure out who they were and, and why they were sometimes shutting the door. But yeah. that was that was a little bit of a, uh, definitely an eye-opening experience. You know, the speaker's race is something that, as I tell people every day, I, I don't know. I've not been through one yet. I've heard stories about, you know, the last speaker's race and, and the one before it. Uh, but uh, this, is, uh, this is new territory, and the House will certainly... Uh, uh, be expected to, I think, step forward and show its best, its best face, and do the right thing, and elect a speaker that is uh, represents all 150 members and will do the best job in terms of being fair-minded, uh, being being uh, a good leader, someone that uh, we can depend on to uh, to, to represent us uh, it, when when those backroom discussions do happen with yeah. Lieutenant Governor 
and the governor. Well, so let me let me go here for just a second. It's often my thesis on this program that the I say the problem, but the battle lines more and more are drawn suburban versus rural and rural with urban to a degree. But essentially, you've got politician this is me saying this stan lambert not you but you got people that are confronting suburban interests where the majority of the population lives in this state over traditional interests which are just people who you know their great grandfather lived here they're going to live here and their kids are going to live here we don't have like some 15 year expectation that we're going to live here and we're going to move off based upon where the corporation sends us and all i have to say it must be difficult in that term, especially as a freshman uh, like yourself, to have conversations with senators who are caught up in this much more than House members in this, well, we're going to go after suburban initiatives and we're going to leave rural folks behind. Well, I agree. I mean, I think that's really the, I think that's really the, the, the crux of what we're talking about is that when you talk about education, I mean, it's, you know, folks in Houston still want their kids to graduate in 12 years, and they still want them to be ready to go on to either college or to be ready for the workforce, or they want them to go into the military, and and that's the same goals we have in West Texas, too. Mm -hmm. How to get there is really where I think we find the differences in terms of maybe the urban versus rural. And I think that's where we've got to be a little bit more, uh, you know, I don't I don't necessarily say that uh, compromise is a bad word. I think we've got to be willing to sit down and talk yeah. about those issues. But, so and, here's, here's the deal, just to interrupt, because the problem is that whenever you, Stan Lambert, your community knows you, uh, maybe the region, and maybe you're getting to know different parts of your district more and more, but it's very easy for blowhards like myself to get behind a microphone and completely misrepresent you on an issue, maybe even say that you're a Democrat because of the way that you're talking, when if you understand and appreciate the process of Approximate Solutions in Austin, you do have to have compromise, and you have to understand. Like, this is what blows my mind. Let me just go off for a second. Harry Reid laid out, essentially, the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh. Let's go to D.C. for just a moment. He changed the rules, man. He changed the rules, and if you have a problem with Brett Kavanaugh, take it up with Harry Reid, because he changed the rules. And this is what bothers me to no end. Like, we talk all the time about, well, there's not really a blue wave. It's just a blue trickle. Well, we wouldn't engage it as blue anything if it weren't a problem. And I think, and this is my own assumption, but I think a rules change will haunt us for generations because if there's another dynamic where there's another one-party system like there's traditionally been in Texas from Democrat to Republican and then back to Democrat, we'll never see Republican leadership again in this state. One day, now this is whenever my kids are older, but I think it's perfectly feasible to think that way within a couple of decades, and they will always point back to the Harry Reeds of the Texas legislature that change the rules in how you elect a speaker. Now, do you agree with that assessment in any terms? You know what? I think you're right. I, I would, uh, you know, I would just give you this example. About three weeks ago, I attended a birthday, a 90th birthday party for former state representative Bob Hunter, who served this district admirably for 20 years, uh, from 1985 to 2005. Bob turned 90. And Pete Laney was the first guy in the door to his birthday party. You know, the, the fact that people could sit down together 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and seem to work out solutions on some of the most important major issues that our state's facing, I, I, I still believe that that, is the, that should be the mantra, that should be the way in which we try to work together now. Am I going to push conservative principles and conservative beliefs? Absolutely. I was born and raised in West Texas. I was born in a very religious, a faith-based uh, family that, uh, uh, where you know my beliefs uh, in, in religious, uh, you know, beliefs are very strong, and I'm I'm not going to waver from those. But at the same time, we're all Texans first, and we have got to figure out how to work together to serve the 28 million, almost 30 million in the next uh, three, year, three or four years when we do redistricting. So 
we better figure out a way to work together so that we can make sure that all Texans enjoy the, the benefits and the things that are basically happening in our state right now, which is a great economy, great opportunities, a lot of success, and we need to keep this uh, ball moving forward. Yeah, uh, Matt texting, let me get to a couple of texts. Matt texting in saying, please don't ever sing again, and that's from the first segment. Uh, got another one like that. And I'm not going to read the third one. And uh, the next one is, uh, please stop screaming and let Stan talk. So uh, well. Stan Lambert here, state representative out of Abilene. But it really does irk me that that let's go all in and change and lose our ground uh, long term. And uh, I, I, th- I see it as a forfeit. I really do. And I think that it's something that could haunt us for a long time. But it also bothers me that there are people, and I even spoke up for Jeff Leach, your cohort out of Plano. Um, yeah. He, he spoke up, and you don't have to comment on this. It's not what our conversation's about. But he expressed, uh, State Representative uh, Leach represented, uh, said that he was very disappointed with the Trump's uh uh, appearance with Putin yesterday and I really admire that because he is definitely going against all polling that shows that Trump would kill anybody in Texas right now but still is able to speak uh, clearly and I think those of you who speak clearly through this process and know that you know what we're going to stand on our principles we're going to work in coalitions. We're going to work as a body. But for listeners who may not understand what's going on, it's 76 members will elect the next speaker. And that's all it takes. That's been the rules forever. And, you know, 50, maybe 55, some may say 60 of those members will be Democrats. So it is a matter of pragmatism to an extent. Well, I think the caucus, though, will, will elect a conservative uh, a nominee, and I think that that nominee will have the full support of the 149 other members uh, when it's all said and done. Okay. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe the process is going to work, that people are going to do the right thing when it comes time to exercise their right to uh, voice their opinion or to raise their hand. And uh, I believe that it'll, it'll all turn out well in the end. Okay. Yeah, Stan Lambert, I'm going to keep – I know – I. I I said that we would probably be on for 15 minutes. It's looking like it's going to be 20. Is that okay with you? You bet. Okay. Absolutely. So tell me, for listeners, and we get more and more list, new listeners, and we do this program because it's my belief. I focus on Texas politics because it keeps us out of the national polemical craziness, number one. But number two, it is a form of government that impacts people's day-to-day lives like no other form. And I would include municipal and county in that as well. And something that's very important in Texas politics is the Sunset Commission. And, you know, to speak to uh, what your fellow members think of you in House leadership, you were put on the Sunset Commission. Explain to people what Sunset is. Some say it is probably the most important committee involved in the legislature. Well, I think it is, uh, besides appropriations and, and ways and means. I think it certainly is one of the uh, one of the committees that that has the most uh, you know responsibility to to really measure and to objectively determine uh, are the state agencies really doing the job and the original mission that they were intended to do. So basically, Sunset is a review process uh, about every ten years. Uh, each agency, uh, and there's tons of them as you know but we're reviewing 31 of them this year and we'll uh, come up with recommendations based on the sunset staff doing their initial review and coming up uh, with their recommendations and then the committee will review those recommendations determine if those are worthy of moving forward do they need to be edited do they need to be modified amended uh, completely uh, rejected Uh, and then that will turn into legislation once the session begins in january uh, and a sunset bill will be presented uh, with all of these recommendations included. So it's really a, an opportunity to do more of a deep dive into these agencies and really figure out what they're doing, uh, how are they measuring success, do they have good data, do they have good reporting mechanisms, are there good communication uh, procedures and, and models in place in order to make sure that our public is being responded to in a uh, in a worthy manner. And so those are all the things that basically we're looking at. I was very honored, very uh, humbled 
uh, to be asked to serve on the committee after just being on there for one term as a freshman. But uh, I think, again, that kind of comes back a little bit to the background that you described earlier where I have been in banking, I've been in finance, I've been in business, I've, I've hired people, I've fired people. I've also been an athletic director, worked in higher education, worked on a school board for 10 years and served as president. So uh, just having a little bit of understanding and, and knowledge about all of those different areas uh, probably helps me uh, do a more effective job on the Sunset Commission. Yeah, so effectively we're looking at setting the sun setting on some different entities. What's one entity that people don't appreciate uh, maybe the way that they should that is being given serious consideration of being sunsetted, ended? Well, I don't know that anyone is really being looked at right now. We've just had We've had two meetings, and we've only voted so far on one set of recommendations that the Sunset staff uh, brought forward. So we're still fairly early. We've got meetings scheduled in the end of August and, and October and November and December. So a lot of our work is kind of pushed towards the end of the interim period as opposed to being done here at the very beginning. So I uh, don't know that there's any agencies right now that I would consider on the chopping block, but... You know, just to give you an example, right now, there is uh, the Department of Public Safety is looking at possibly one of the recommendations is to close 93 rural offices that are only have one person serving in those offices across the state. Uh, you know, to me, the, the total savings in dollars is about $700,000. Mm. But you think about the travel, the additional cost involved for... You know, people in, uh, you know, Seminole, Texas to drive all the way to Lubbock or, you know, people in Roscoe to drive all the way to Abilene just to uh, have their driver's license renewed or to uh, apply for a CDL or do something. You know, to me, that's just, you. that's, again, a, a rural versus urban kind of question about are we really rural set up versus as, urban but, or suburban represent? Well, suburban, maybe. Okay. Yeah, you're right, because... Some of those people would be transferred back into those offices uh, in some of those suburban areas. So, you know, is it really, uh, yeah, sure, we could save $700,000, but what is the actual cost involved, mm. and who are, we really, who, are we, who are we really impacting? No, man. So last thing I want to get in with you here is sure. I'll read you the Abilene Reporter News. And this is old news to you. It's been a couple of weeks back, but I want to engage you. Speaking of rural issues, Stanford Healthcare System announced plans to discontinue hospital inpatient care and emergency room services in a statement released um, the Monday of that week, citing a, deadline, a decline in patient numbers and an inability to meet Medicaid requirements. For Texas Insiders, uh, of course, there's going to be a decline in patient numbers, but it's the Medicaid requirements and the Medicaid reimbursement issue from the state that seems to be um, what uh, the cow eating the cabbage in the whole scenario. Um, we've talked with rural hospital representatives on this show, and I think that there are many who believe what there are 61 rural hospitals left in Texas at this point. And some see Stanford as being the forerunner of what's going to happen in the next two or three years to many other rural hospitals. What can be done about this, Stan Lambert, and will you take something up in the next legislature in these on this issue? I think we're studying the issue, and we're talking also with uh, other representatives from other parts of the state who are dealing with the same kinds of issues that are impacting our rural communities, uh, particularly with regards to health care and medical services provided. We've, we've kind of known that this particular situation uh, in Stanford was, was going to occur at some point. Uh, what they see or what the folks in Stanford decide to do as far as what type of medical services, what type of limited programs will they still be able to offer? Will they still have a clinic? Will they still be able to, to do ER-type services, uh, transfer trauma-type patients to places like Abilene or Lubbock? Uh, those are things that are just happening uh, kind of as a you know, the stars are aligned now because not not only are they not getting paid uh, to cover their cost, uh, whether that's Medicare or Medicaid reimbursement rates, or whether the just the population declining in those areas is causing their census numbers and their occupancy numbers to decline to a point where they just can't they just can't provide 
uh, enough services or enough uh, patient care uh, to, to basically cover the operating costs. So uh, I, I don't think it's, uh, you know, I kind of have seen this, to be honest with you, I've seen it in the banking industry over the years with more regulations and more things that uh, banks have to, uh, are required to do. You yeah, see, community you, banks you, especially. Yeah, yeah you've seen c- consolidation. Uh, we hope that uh, the Stanford Hospital District and its board will, in fact, they met this morning. I haven't talked to anyone yet to find out how that meeting went, but uh, they will continue to be uh, as as aggressive as they can be. Uh, they will still need to be accountable to the uh, taxpayers and those uh, folks that are making those payments every uh, every uh, year to the, to the hospital district. But uh, will there be some changes? Will there be some reductions in those tax rates to... Uh, provide a, a, a lower cost of operations for that uh, for that clinic to survive and to continue to operate and provide just some very basic services to the folks in Stanford, Texas. No. I think I think this is something we're all kind of interested in seeing. This is where telemedicine and telepharmacy and other types of what kinds of ways can we look at for health care to be delivered to our rural communities mm-hmm. uh, in a way that is still provides the basic services at a very efficient uh, cost and yet doesn't uh, impose a heavy tax burden on the local taxpayers. Well, so those are, those are things we're going to continue to watch and continue to work towards. Yeah, Representative Stan Lambert closing out with us here on the other side of Texas. Drop the name appropriately at this time to say this. And this is the part where I lean into the microphone and I'm rubbing my eyes because I do it out of <laughs> frustration. But there is a complete abdication on the part of the state, in my view, for, we talk about rural places like I see like we're going to go across district and we're going to talk to everybody but here's what I don't see for all I hear about well let's cut DPS offices let's uh, let's close down the Stanford Hospital altogether and then you know the 300 days a year where the weather winds okay we'll just flight them uh, put them on a helicopter to Lubbock or Abilene and those are not like we have and I'll drop his name Mayor James Decker comes on this show from time to time I think he's a great young representative from rural Texas and as bright as they come and what that says to me when we're closing inpatient and you know I'm not going to assume if there was some fiscal mismanagement with Stanford or not but what, by and large, these hospitals say is Medicaid uh, redis- redistribution or uh, reimbursement. And it just all sounds like an abdication. So what I'm going to do is maybe I'll start a pack or I'll just send it from the LLC. I'm going to send all you guys a white paper on stop trying to find ways to save it and of rural Texas and start finding ways to renew it. Because I think that there, I think within my lifetime, certainly we'll see some reinvigoration if guys like yourself step up to the moment and uh, step into the gap within globalization and everything else. But with that, I could go another half hour. But go ahead and give me your response there. Well, add to that, add to that list uh, not only rural health care but uh, our roads, uh, transportation. Uh, you know, you see all the dollars that are being spent in and, the Dallas-Fort Worth. And, and that's what's great. Like, I hear, like, essentially what we're talking about with hospitals, and I try not to get too far in the weeds for listeners, but we're talking about formula funding, okay? And then with schools and rural schools picking up the slack, we're talking about formula funding. I remember the last meeting of the texas senate you had democrats concurring with the lieutenant governor that they ought to take up a study in consolidating schools now that does not bode well i don't think for the next legislature but there were back to formula funding and then there's movement within the texas house to reformulate funding to get money out of rural road. We had Brooks Landgraf on the show last week. His district, more than any other district, is taking a hit on roads, uh, given the, the miracle and everything that comes out of the basin. But now right. now there's major movement to, oh, let's go ahead and, uh, let's go ahead and cut off some more rural fu- road funding, the deadliest roads in the country, so that we can solve some of these other problems. Because we don't have, this is me speaking, not Stan Lambert, because we don't have the backbone to finance it the way that it needs to be paid for in our own districts. Well, that's true, but I think also the state has an obligation to make sure that these uh, programs are fully funded. And I didn't agree with the Supreme Court decision that 
education was adequately funded uh, because I served on the school district where we lost about $6 million in 2011. And we've never fully recovered that uh, just here in Abilene. So to say we're adequately funded uh, in education, whether it's health care, whether it's roads, uh, we've got to get uh, we've got to get folks over on the other side of the Capitol to understand that we're not just bleeding. We're, we're now hitting some arteries, and we've got to make sure that we're not just uh, so conservative to the point of funding uh, that we have, have lost touch with the reality of what the needs are in a growing state. And so uh, rural needs are going to be the thing that we're going to continue to fight for. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a rural versus urban uh, dilemma, and it's not going to get any easier with redistricting in about three years because we're going to we're going to lose some representation to uh, the I thirty five quarter, and it's going to be uh, it's going to become even tougher. But uh, that's why we're down there. That's why we're trying to make sure that uh, your voice is heard, and others in uh, West Texas are are make sure that they have a seat at the table. So no. that's 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 the fight we're in. Okay, last uh, question, and I'll give Paul credit for this, and I'll let you go. I promise. Uh, okay. <laughs> next time I call your office, they're going to be like, are you sure it's going to be 15 minutes? Uh, where does West Texas begin, Stan Lambert? Where does West Texas begin? From east to west, where does it begin? Uh, well, it's kind of that thought that you had of driving off the Caprock and, and coming into Abilene. I mean, you just, uh, you, you know, it, the air is clear, and, and hopefully there's not as much haze. As you see with all of the uh, combustible uh, uh, gasoline engines in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, but somewhere around Weatherford, I would think, is kind of where you start to feel like, okay, I'm, I'm coming home. I'm, I'm real close to home now. So, so more where the oak trees begin to decline or I-35? Well, you said oak trees. Maybe pecans. I, I don't know. That Maybe you start seeing a few more mesquites and a little bit more sagebrush, but... Uh, no. Thank yeah, you, Charles. Good night. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, uh, Stan Lambert, I really do appreciate you taking time to go overtime with us. And, Enjoyed it. Uh, we hope that you'll come back soon. Happy to. Have a good day. Stan thank you so Lambert. much. Thank you, bud. Uh, get out with him. Go to a quick break. I'm going to set up. Hey, you think this day was good. You wait till Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. Oh, my goodness. Friday's going to be great. I'm going to tell you all about those things. Stick right where you are. Good stuff coming ahead right here from the studios where Waylon Jennings smoked something. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that we're going to report it accurately. Be right back. This is what happens when your mother drops you on your head one too many times. Welcome back to The Other Side with Jay Leeson. to get into there i wish we had another hour here but i got to get home and get home to a great family above average dinner uh, mary marilyn sorry marilyn says what an informative discussion glad that this show is around learn so much well that's kind we appreciate that uh, you find all the audio from today Catherine boudreau and Stan Lambert up at Other Side of Texas coming up uh, tomorrow on the show. Ross Ramsey, executive editor of the Texas Tribune, joins us to go into the weeds. Nobody knows the weeds of Texas politics better than Ross Ramsey. Get in with him and talk about the latest that's going on. And also, my friend, my friend of me, my friend or friend of me, Greg Vanneklausen is in Canyon, Texas. He's a vet, and he can clone anything. He's a master of his trade, and Greg Vanneklausen has a problem with the Texas Tech Vet School. I've covered that, and I think I've taken Tech's side in that issue, but Greg Vanneklausen and I have spoken several times offline and thought it would be a good time for Greg to come on and he and I will jab at each other about all this and I won't really take a red and black stand as much as you know if 
Texas had a shortage of plumbers and you were a plumber, maybe you wouldn't want a university teaching journeymen and new plumbers. Maybe you wouldn't. Like, that makes sense. Like, we want our cut. Like, and I'm not a... Those are just honest questions. That's the kind of conversation we're going to have tomorrow with Greg Vanaclausen. Uh On Thursday, who do we... Oh, James Arnold. ABC Bank's going to come in. We're going to talk about some economics in the region. That'll be a good conversation. And then on Friday, Brandon Darby will be in. Breitbart, Texas is Brandon Darby. And we're going to have retired Colonel Bob Starr on with us. And me and Darby are going to throw down our first edition of Master Debaters. We're going to take up an issue, be assigned a point of view, and we're just going to go at each other. And it's going to be wonderful, and it's going to be great, and it makes me so glad that I have the opportunity to sit behind these microphones with you each afternoon. Like the program, tell friends about it, and uh, thank you for your texts and for your emails. Uh, Jay at Other Side of Texas going to close out now for Catherine Boudreaux. And state representative Stan Lambert. Sign off right here. Thanks for hanging out on the other side of Texas. It's who we want.